Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Julie Seabaugh grew up on a farm and discovered stand-up when Dave Attell performed during her senior year at the University of Missouri, where she earned her bachelor's degree in journalism. In 2003, after moving to New York City, Seabaugh launched her earliest independent effort into comedy journalism with the online magazine Two Drink Minimum. A career with alt-weeklies followed with stops across the country from The Village Voice to The Riverfront Times in St. Louis, Las Vegas Weekly, and LA Weekly. In 2018, she published her first book, Ringside at Roast Battle, The First Five Years of LA's Fight Club for Comedians, and her love of Mitch Hedberg led to producing and hosting 2020's Hope on Top, a Mitch Hedberg oral history for Sirius XM's Comedy Central channel. Seabot caught up with me over Zoom to talk about her latest project, co-directing and producing the documentary Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, which premieres on Vice TV on September 8th, just before the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks that took down the World Trade Center. Her film also will have a commemorative screening on September 11th, 2021, at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Seabaugh spoke with dozens of comedians for the documentary, and now she speaks to me. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Epiphany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Julie Siva, uh, it's so great to catch up with you, uh, journalist to journalist, but this time I am interviewing you. Uh, Weird. Because you just uh, are putting out a, a new movie. You co-directed uh, a documentary called Too Soon, which is about the comedy of and post 9-11. So, yeah, there's she- nothing I would rather talk about than 9-11. It's, it's like my favorite topic these days. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, congrats on the movie. And uh, last things first, what's your 9-11 story? You don't talk about your own 9-11 story in the movie. What's yours? Oh, yeah. Um, I was a junior at the University of Missouri in journalism school. And uh, I only had one class on Tuesdays, which was an 11 o'clock intermediate writing class with Professor Steve Friedman. And we all went to class and complained that we had to be there. And he let us out early. and me and my friends went across the street to the journalism bar that we kind of had all claimed for ourselves, the Heidelberg and got drunk the rest of the day. And that was my nine 11. <laughs> yeah. So I was still back in Missouri. I was not in New York. Um, and it took several years to, you know, I had actually been to New York uh, a few different times as part of the magazine club trips we took at journalism magazine club magazine club trip we would always uh, visit new york every february and visit Mm -hmm. alumni in their offices and network and learn how to be a journalist in new york like the time life building yeah we we went uh god newsweek esquire i remember um yeah yeah all of those i guess if you're in a magazine club new york city is the place to go Right. And it was always uh, right before my birthday, too. I remember that in February. Um, but yeah, we had um, actually on one of those trips had stayed down at the Embassy Suites that was right there at the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that building got 
you know, all the windows blown out and the, there was a, an atrium, glass atrium uh, with all the plants in it that, yeah, got a bit demolished. Um, but yeah, I was also at that time uh, getting the onion delivered to my party <laughs> house in college on, yes. on North 8th Street in Columbia, Missouri, um, because the onion was huge at the time. You know, all the comedy writers loved it and cool college students loved it. Uh, they had not quite moved to New York yet. They were still based in Wisconsin. But I remember getting the 9-11 issue that they did a week and a half later delivered on my door and just being, you know, having the experience that I realized so many years later that a lot of other people had of that was the first time you laughed again of reading the, you know, real life turns into bad Jerry Bruckheimer film, um, you know, uh, America vows to defeat whoever it is we're at war with. God angrily clarifies do not kill rule. Um, not knowing what else to do, woman bakes American flag cake. And I, I very much remember having that visceral gut feeling of like, okay, comedy is still going to be able to happen. We can kind of take steps towards normalcy. And that issue is actually what I bonded over uh, my co-director, Nick Scown, with. Years later, um, in 2016, when we started making the film, you know, that, that, that now at this point predates the Trump presidency. Right. How Five did... years in the making. We both remember that issue very, very well. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you, you started working on the documentary before the Roast Battle book, right? Yes. Yeah. Roast <laughs> Battle book came out 2018 uh, for the fifth anniversary of Roast Battle. So... Yeah, the, the documentary was definitely kind of, it, it switched on and off from front burner to back burner mm -hmm. several times over those five years. But yeah, we started filming in Montreal just for laughs of 2016 and kind of pieced it all together, just the two of us on our own for a good four years until we, you know, got connected with Pulse Films, who has, you know, his, did the history of comedy on CNN and uh, a lot of other great documentaries, mostly about more music stuff. And now we're kind of able to uh, break them into the comedy documentary world. And they hooked us up with Hazy Mills, uh, Sean Hayes' production company, and finally Vice, which uh, is where we're going to be airing September 8th. But getting back to September of 2001, at the time, you're a, a journalism student at one of the probably three places that you're supposed to go as a journalism student. That's what they tell you. Yep. So, they tell you that over and over. The yeah. best. You go to the University of Wisconsin if you want to become an, a fake journalist at the <laughs> Onion. But you go to Missouri, Columbia, or Northwestern. If, mm -hmm. I guess if you want to go into broadcasting, then you can, might go to Syracuse. But anyhow, you already knew you wanted to be a journalist. How did September 11th and that ensuing month impact how you felt about journalism? Ah. Interesting. Um, I kind of always knew I wanted to live in New York anyway. Um, I say this as someone who now lives in Los Angeles, but has lived in New York, you know, four times. Um, and um, I mean, still as a journalism student, you think you know it all <laughs> and you're going to get out of there and you're going to conquer the world. Um, I don't remember if it was necessarily... Uh, the coverage of 9-11 was connected to what I wanted to do with my life at that point because I hadn't actually discovered comedy yet. It took until another year, senior year, when David Tell came 
and did a show there. I was more at that time writing about film and music. And then everything post David Tell was like, <laughs> oh, I'm supposed to write about comedy. <laughs> he was your bright light experience. He was, he got me, got me into it. Um, but at the time also, you know, journalism was more important than it was today. We, everybody was glued to the news 24 hours and what you saw was, you know, trustworthy and it didn't have a spin on it. Um, there's definitely a bit of a juxtaposition with what we see today. And I know you deal with this too of, you know, journalism now is a bit more about uh, having a hot take and opinions and listicles and, you, you know, um, having some quote out of context and reacting to it. It's not even journalism, it's content. Right. Um, so part of the thing we tried to do in the film is we have a lot of highlighted newspaper headlines from the time when journalism like was important though. This is actually before social media, how we learn and connect to things. Um, See, so yeah, I don't know if it necessarily at that time, journalism had as much of a huge impact, but making the film, it definitely reminded me of, um, when, when journalism, uh, was a bit more respected and, mm -hmm. you know, a career. Oh yeah. You were, in the, you, magazine, could, uh, you were in the magazine club. You, <laughs> you were, you were, <laughs> yeah. you were probably aspiring to be at Esquire or Newsweek. Totally. Yeah. At the time. Did, is that, is that what you were intending when you did graduate? It was at first. Uh, and then you kind of, quickly realize um i maybe don't have the right uh <laughs> attitude to have a full-time work in an office journalism job and do the stories that you're assigned to do you know right. um when an editor tells you you have to do something uh because you're paid a full-time salary remember that Wow. I do. I used to be a newspaper reporter back yeah. when there were newspapers. I know. Back in the day, you could actually have a career and a life. Um, and, and just, you know, staying out at night and hanging with comics, I kind of realized that it would make more sense to pitch things freelance because you can't really, at that time, uh, when I moved to New York was 2003, there was really no one covering comedy in a full-time capacity. You know, it was always shoved in there with the music and calendar listings, as you recall. I do. So, so how did you decide to start Two Drink Minimum to start up your own magazine as right. part of the club? <laughs> Two Drink Minimum was the online comedy magazine I started back then. Um, I was at Caroline's, again, seeing Dave Attell. And if you remember, they used to have those old headshots that would come up on the TV monitors. Mm -hmm. And you're like, whoa, look at this person back in the day. And it's like, I wonder who has actually followed Dave Attell's career as a whole or any comedian, you know, because again, at this time, comedians were all sort of just lumped in together as comedy. And you would see a show at a comedy club and have no idea who was playing. It took a long time for comedians to kind of you know, establish their own fan bases to the point where people would go see them because they like their style and, and the, their outlook on life. And just sitting there thinking about that is like, I, I would love to see somewhere kind of cover comedians like they do musicians or filmmakers. And that's where uh, the old two drink minimum originally came from. So how is that set up in 2003? Remind 
my listeners. Right. Remind myself. Was it, was it, I mean, I know blogger.com was kind of like the big one. I I guess TypePad (laughs) and WordPress were around or what were you using to, to publish? I had a friend, Dan Tilkowski, who was actually with me at the David Tell show at the university of Missouri. Um, (laughs) And after the Atel show, I like woke up on his bathroom floor puking because he'd gotten us all drunk on Jägermeister. And <laughs> so Dan already understood my lo- understood my love for comedy, and he was also in New York at that time. Uh, he was a designer, so he basically did everything for me. And the technical questions, we'd probably have to refer to him. I just uh, okay. put everything together on, you know, the typical word. And uh, he he did the actual magic. Okay. Now, did you have any sort of budget or did you not care about the finances at that time? Everybody was working for free, including <laughs> myself. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was like all things, uh, a labor of love with very, very, very little financial okay. compensation. Uh, and... Uh, probably because of that, it only lasted about like two years. And then I got kind of pulled up into the Village Voice media chain and uh, became an editorial fellow there and moved back to uh, Missouri and got a job at the Riverfront Times in St. Louis. And from there, I was in Vegas and then L.A. and New York. And the magazine kind of didn't uh, survive all of those transitions. Okay. Uh, but Las Vegas, so Las Vegas was just part of your tour through the Alt Weekly system. Then. Yeah, when Alt okay. Weekly were still a viable thing. Okay, because you were in Las Vegas when I first heard of you. Like, I somehow ah. didn't, I was in Arizona during, working for the Arizona Republic during your two drink minimum period. So I had no idea that that you were doing that at the time. I heard about you in 2007 when I decided to go freelance and started the comics comic, I think that very first weekend, Todd from Dead Frog was talking you up. I guess he was, oh, he was hitting right. you up for some freelance stuff for, for Dead Frog. Um, I met Todd. Um, yeah, I was in Vegas from 2006 to eight. And it was when the, uh, HBO had the comedy festival in Vegas at Caesars Palace. And I met Todd there. So I guess that's how that all came about. And he has a much better memory of it than I do of like, yeah, I remember you were in the back of the Don Rickles show and you were like looking at Dave Attell who was peeping in the side door and you kept looking at Attell and you weren't watching Rickles. And I was just like, wow, that's wow. Todd Jackson, <laughs> watch yourself. <laughs> like, I don't remember that, but uh, I'm, I'm glad we met then. The rest is <laughs> in history. So when you were working for all those all weeklies, whether it was St. Louis or Vegas, uh, and then New York and LA, was it, were you always laser focused on comedy or were you doing other, other things for them at the time? Uh, for Las Vegas weekly, I was, uh, a staff entertainment reporter, um, kind of my only quote unquote job I've actually ever had as an adult, uh, <laughs> where you, where you do go into the office and you have the meetings and you got to mm-hmm. pitch the things and, um, you have to wear shoes. I remember that being an issue. Like, I was, I was, I was, I was trying to wear flip flops all the time. Well, it is very hot in Las Vegas, so I could see why very, you wouldn't yeah. want to wear shoes. 
So um, I was covering all things in Vegas, but obviously I always had a soft spot for comedy and I would always preview all the shows that were coming through town and catch them all. And um, yeah, I even think I had a little comedy blog for Las Vegas weekly for a while. But again, that was another little two year stint that how did you ended decide- and then I moved on. Yeah. How did you decide it was time to move on and then become what you've been doing since then, which has mostly just been doing your own stuff? Uh, at Las Vegas Weekly specifically, uh, this was the time, um, uh, you know, if you remember 2007, 2008 financial collapse and uh, sort of when journalism took a big nosedive because if nobody has any money in their advertising budget, they don't advertise in the newspapers and then newspapers get small and they lay people off. So I didn't really have much of a choice in that one. Um, But at that point, I just think I had established so many contacts and knew so many people and was done with working in offices where you couldn't wear flip-flops. But it just made more sense to, yeah, just keep pitching and see what happened. And I I mean, you picked a good time because that's right when comedy began to boom again, the digital boom of comedy. Because there there were points where like you had like back-to-back covers of The Village Voice, I remember. You oh, know, right. There is, yeah. Profiles of like Eric Andre and Keith and the Girl and all this stuff. Michael Che was, yeah. yeah. Uh, Amy Schumer on the cover of Variety. I mean, there's so much stuff that was, that was going on in the city. So to be able to like get the cover as often as you did. Yeah. And there was like, even a week where I had... Um, uh, roast battle cover of Ellie Weekly and Village Voice cover of Bridget Everett in the exact same week. That was a good one. Yeah, how cross, was that? Cross country. <laughs> what, was, what was that week like for you? Did uh, the the Bridget Everett one I'd been working on more actively. Uh, came in and saw our show at Joe's Pub. Um, but the roast battle one was actually originally supposed to be for Vice. <laughs> to come full circle okay now that i have too soon comedy after 9 11 airing there but the uh editor uh who had assigned it to me i guess got let go or something and i never even heard from him ever again Mm -hmm. so i was looking for somewhere else to place that roast battle okay story and yeah la weekly makes sense for an la show now what was the first time you experienced roast battle because obviously like you fell in love with it enough to want to write the definitive book about it. Yeah. So what was your first experience with Rose Battle? So Rose Battle started in the summer of 2013, if I'm remembering it all correctly. And I kept hearing from, I remember Brody Stevens was actually one of the ones who was like, oh, you got to go see it. Uh, I think Josh Adam Myers at another time. Uh, But people kept saying, yeah, you got to see this show. And you know, like, you hear that a lot. Like, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of shows I got to see. I know, I know, whatever. I'll get around to it. And I was there for something else. I think it had something to do with Stanhope, but uh, I was downstairs and you can kind of hear it upstairs, you know, all the people yelling and chanting and a lot, oh my gosh. And there's a DJ going and, you know, finally, you know, when you make your way up the stairs for the first time and it's just standing room only packed, sweating, 
and there's people jumping around and you're like, what is this show? I've never seen anything like this. And the more I watched it, the more I liked it for just the way it kind of served as an ultimate equalizer. There are things we all don't like about ourselves. And instead of having anxiety about them, it's better just kind of get them out in the open and laugh at them. And we all feel better for it. I mean, not me personally. I've never done a roast battle. But... <laughs> you mean you mean Jeff or, or or Brian Moses has never convinced you to to do one? Not no. Nobody's ever asked me. They know better than that. I, I did judge uh, the week when when the book came out, just for you know promotional stuff, and I did all right. You know, I made, I made fun of Jeff a little bit and um, talked about how. Uh, who was it? Um, I can't remember who it was, but it's like this, this guy always sucks up to me online. So I'm voting for him. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm, su- I'm surprised that Brian and Jeff didn't try to get us to roast each other. as like a, oh, a special like right. insider thing. But at, at the same time, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm also like, Oh, I don't think I'd want to do that at all. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to roast Julie and have Julie roast me. I, I don't think I'd want that at all. It, even despite hearing you just say, like, we're supposed to confront the things we don't like about ourselves. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not in front of 150 people. Maybe not. Yeah. It's, it's I don't know. I, I just always appreciated the fact that, you know, it was very, uh, the most amazingly diverse show I'd always seen and nothing was off limits. And at the end of it, you hug and there's a real kind of community behind it, even though it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like there would be on the surface. Um, yeah, I think the only other time that I, the only time I've actually ever been on stage in a comedy capacity was at the end of my 40th birthday roast last year in the belly room also. Oh, right. So um, you, you did get roasted. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I get a tell was there and that was like the best birthday present ever. But I, yeah, I wrote <laughs> I all those. I making fun of you. Ah, <laughs> oh, it was the best. Uh, but I wrote all those jokes myself. Um and I just kind of uh, had that little sampling. Is like, yep, that's all I need. I've never really had any interest in being on stage. It was always about the writing aspect of it and turning people onto comedy they should be aware of. So when, okay, so having said that, when you hear comedians who are upset about criticism say that critics are just wannabe comedians, how do you, how do you take it? <laughs> when you see them do, when you see them lash out, a criticism um like that i i gosh yeah i i tend to ignore it uh and then also remember them and never talk to them again <laughs> like i'm not going to be involved in that conversation i have better things to do mm-hmm. but there's all there's a few comics who have said things over the years not about me necessarily but just uh, comedy reviewing in general. And I'm like, yep, you're off my radar officially just because I don't want to deal with it. Um, right. if, if comics can say that, uh, you know, make these projections of how people think and feel about them, then they should be able to kind of turn it back around too and realize that, no, you're, you're actually wrong. That's not at all what I'm thinking. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't, um, and to be honest, I don't even really catch up with a lot of 
that stuff anymore. I, I tend to not be on social media these days and read comedy coverage. Um, I feel like I'm trying to finally less make my career about responding to things that happen in the comedy industry and more make things that other people will respond to. Hence the, uh, the jumping into the movie world. Right. Writing, well, both writing a book and directing and producing and making a movie, both are these long projects that allow you to get out of, like you said earlier um, <laughs> about the, the current state of journalism, like the content machine or the attention economy, perhaps of like everything right. is about getting the clicks. So we need to get your attention so we can get your clicks. But once you take yourself out of that equation to work on like for the last five or six years on making a documentary, you're so focused on that, that you don't, you don't, you don't even have to worry about all of the nonsense that's going on about cancel culture or whatever the latest gripe that comedians have. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. The attention culture. That's, that's, Precisely it. Um, And, you know, you're always told when you get those inspirational advice quotes of like, just do your own thing, man. Don't worry about anybody else. You know, create what you want to see in the world. And it took a while for me to finally figure out like, oh, that's exactly what this means. Like we're, we're here for a limited time and our brains are only going to be functioning for so long. Why am I worried about all this other nonsense? I'm just going to go on to the next project that I give a shit about, as opposed to all these other tiny little stories that are just uh, kind of paying rent at the time. There's got to be something more to it. Right. And both, both the book on Roast Battle and Too Soon Comedy After 9-11, they both kind of um, delve with the same idea about uh, the idea of is there a line that you can that you can or cannot cross um, you know because roasting is all about like deliberately crossing the line but it's with consent right <laughs> because <laughs> the people have consented to battle so it's like uh, all, all rules are off except especially because you have to hug at the end but with you know but with too soon it's like even now 20 years later if you were to go on social media, Julie Seabaugh, you would see that we're having the same exact debates, except now we have social media to have these debates 24-7 now, instead of just through the, the, the lamestream media about, <laughs> is it, I mean, I remember, like, when I was working at the Arizona Republic, I wrote a story about comedy in 9-11 for April Fools of 2002, to like see like how much how much the conversation had like spun all the way around by April Fools about the whether irony was dead and everything about that. But cancel culture, wokeness, social justice warriors, it's it's all kind of still that, that question of is it too soon? Is it <laughs> Yeah. Is it, there are th- certain things off limits. Is there is there something about that question that that annoys you or excites you that you're I've always been drawn uh as someone from rural Missouri who grew up in a very conservative white area that worshiped Rush Limbaugh um 
been very interested in finding what's where where's the line between the truth that we're told and the truth that we discover for ourselves Mm. um which is kind of why i was gravitating towards comedy you know it's it's all about people's experiences and perceptions and conveying those to an audience and hope it connects there's like nothing I love more than like being in the back of the room and seeing a very like diverse comedy crowd from all different areas of life. They're coming together in this one moment and they're laughing at these same jokes. Like that is a form of truth to me. And I think the biggest takeaway from these projects for me is that you can't command other people to take on your truths. Um, so that's kind of the things we see debated online these days, um, where it's like, no, this is right. No, this is right. Uh, there's, there's a lot of black and white, um, that goes on, uh, in, in Twitter where I see things as so much more gray than that. And the biggest message I think to take away from too soon is not that, all comedy is appropriate anytime we want it to be. It's more that you can't tell people what they can and cannot laugh at. And we're never going to find, there's not an answer. It's just, this is part of, you know, something that is continually evolving in society. If you think about the things that, you know, like Bill Hicks and George Carlin and Lenny Bruce were talking about, you know, they help shift, you know, what is socially acceptable to think and talk about um comedians are always on the cutting edge of that but it's it's something that's always shifting too so yeah in my mind uh the question isn't like what is too soon it's that you should be more uh aware of the fact that other people have different opinions than you do and you can't force yours on them yes comedy (laughs) comedy what do they say about opinions everyone has one um so to leave this on a lighter note perhaps is it too soon for me to ask you what you now think the truth is regarding the amazing jonathan oh my gosh wow (laughs) are people gonna know what you're talking about Um, (laughs) you were central to the to the the two documentaries I watched, you were it's a... so crazy. <laughs> um, is it too soon to ask what you now think in 2021 is the, is the real um, truth of Amazing Jonathan? Well, uh, yeah, I don't know how familiar people are with this, but there was two Amazing Jonathan documentaries made, and I accidentally showed up in one of them. I would say the better of the two. <laughs> um, <laughs> where... Um, I had previously done a cover story on him for Las Vegas Weekly, which I won second place in the uh, Nevada press conference for. It was a great year. story. It was a great second, story. It, that was probably like the best thing I've ever written, honestly. Yeah, no, it was um, really good. And I kind of always stayed in touch with him as he was, you know, he's, his, he has a history of his heart is failing and, um, you know, it's, it's been happening for a while. I think it was, was it 2014 when he announced that he was dying on WTF with Mark Marin? So then I kind of followed up with him and mm-hmm. did uh, the 2015 cover story, if I'm getting my dates right. 
Uh, and then a few years later, I saw he was going to be in Ventura and caught up with him to do a little Q&A for uh, that one was for KNPR Las Vegas's uh, Desert Companion magazine. Um, File that for the he, magazine club. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can kind of see the back of my head in the film. And then I went backstage and interviewed him and he was talking about um, how he's going to get these famous producers to produce his film, which uh, was news to the person who was actually filming him that night for a documentary. (laughs) And when he saw the story that I wrote about who was working on this movie, uh, (laughs) filmmaker was quite surprised and uh, it it sort of spun his film off in a different direction. So what I saw of Jonathan when I was spending a week with him in Vegas um, was that he was actually in pretty rough shape. Um, Tons of meds everywhere. Um, I saw his toe falling off, Mm. you know, uh, which I, you know, in hindsight could have maybe been a prop. Um, But (laughs) the real thing that um convinces me that he was dying is and has kind of not found a cure for but found a way to postpone an untimely death i don't know if i'm actually legally allowed to talk about (laughs) um it involves uh, stem cells obtained right. from from places no this, this is in the one at least one of the documentaries so right so along with um, his continued drug use right yeah so he, he, he had definitely talked a little bit about heroin with me and um yeah i and he ended up having he sold a ton of stuff you know, which is, I think, also in the documentary. It's been a while since I watched it, but he used to have like two warehouses full of stuff and he sold it all to pay his medical bills. And so I I do believe there's definitely something there, but it's been a while since I've thought about it. Um, <laughs> although now I'm wanting to like delve into it again, see what's up with him. Yeah, that's the next project. Well, all I know is if he somehow <laughs> outlives Doug Stanhope, that will be the biggest magic trick. Right. Uh, although stand-ups, like, he has the best memory of anybody I know, which amazes me. For all the alcohol he's consumed, he remembers every single person's name he's ever met and where he met them, and it's oh, yeah. astounding to me. He's an amazing, he's an amazing comedian and an amazing human being, and, uh, yeah. Um, but you are as well, Julie Seabaugh. You are an amazing <laughs> Because Back at you, Sean McCarthy. I have well, I have to say that as as a fellow uh, freelance comedy journalist on the run from society, uh, I have to uh, I have to celebrate you because you you uh, help uh, keep me inspired and motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. So thanks. For doing oh wow! Doing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, nice. If, if I remember you, when we used to like live in a story together and we would like see each other on the subway and it was like, Hey, what the hell? How's your freelance comedy journalism going? Terrible. How's yours? Terrible. Like, <laughs> but we're still here. So it gets better. 
it gets better comedy um, journal it gets better yeah and uh and thank you for putting out this documentary it was not too soon 20 years later is just right for too soon coming <laughs> up in 11 well julie thank you for carving out some time to zoom with me i really appreciate it This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.